you're probably not counting, but just in case you are, then you know that this morning's message is number 22 in our series through the Old Testament. 22 messages in the Old Testament thus far, and we're going all the way through September. I do pray that excites you because I pray that your time in the Old Testament personally through the reading plan has been revealing. It's been rich. I pray it's been refreshing, spiritually refreshing for you. Now, the reason I'm pointing out the number of messages that we've done this, this far, this far uh, up to this point is that for the first time in this series, our main text this morning is coming from the New Testament. It's coming from the New Testament rather than the Old Testament. You might wonder why. Um, if you read Acts chapter 7 on Friday, if you looked at that, New Te- that Friday New Testament reading, then you probably have a good idea why we're focusing on this chapter this morning. Stephen, who was one of the seven men selected at the beginning of Acts chapter 6, we heard a little bit about them when we talked about deacons, or if you watched the deacon video, uh, you heard you heard about that, those, that, that appointment of these men, these seven men, to oversee the church's ministry to widows. So this man, Stephen, is now here in Acts chapter 7. He is standing before the Sanhedrin. What was the Sanhedrin? Yeah, it was, that's right. It was the Jewish council of leaders from different parties, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes, maybe some, maybe some of the Essenes that we know from the Dead Sea Scrolls. This Sanhedrin was, they, were, they had Stephen standing before them. These are the men who had tried Jesus, quote unquote tried, right? Tried Jesus uh, not long before this. And he, Stephen, is providing for them here in Acts 7 an overview of their national, of their ethnic history, at least a part of it. Beginning with Abraham, Stephen, over the course of almost 50 verses, walks his listeners through key moments in Israel's history all the way up to Solomon's construction of the first temple in Jerusalem. Now think about why that's significant for us here at Way of Grace. Why is that chronology significant? Well, the rest of our readings from this past week in the Old Testament, where did they leave us? They left us exactly this, pretty much this same exact time to where Stephen leads up to, to this point, the same spot in the Old Testament story. That is the reign of Solomon and the building of the Jerusalem temple. That's where we arrived at in our readings this past week. That's where Stephen has brought us up to. That's where Stephen has taught, what Stephen has talked about. So I thought that chronological connection between Acts 7 And the readings from the first half of 1 Kings that we've been looking at, it provided us with a good opportunity to stop after 22, now 23 messages, to stop and ask in terms of big and broad takeaways. Takeaways. What has God revealed to us from the Old Testament story so far? What has he revealed to you from the Old Testament story? story so far, right? As you think about the reading that you've done up to this point, what has left an impression on you? 
What have you learned? Though we could and should answer that question in many important ways, there are many things that we should do. And spoiler alert, we'll do this again a month from now. We'll talk about kind of that big picture of the Old Testament. Stephen has given us here one of those answers about what we should take away from the Old Testament. Should we look at that together? Let's look at that together. Look over at Acts 7 if you're not there already in your Bible. Open the Bible up. The text will not be on the screen here. Anything in the immediate context, I'm not going to put on the screen. It's right there in your Bible. It's on your device in your Bible app. Acts chapter 7. Our main text will be verses 51, 52, and 53 this morning. Acts 7, 51 through 53. Now, before we dig into that smaller section there, kind of near the end of this chapter, we need to understand something about the whole passage, about the whole context here. We need to understand that Stephen was not invited here to teach an Old Testament survey class. The Sanhedrin is offering him this week with guest lecturer Stephen. All right, that's not what's happening here. He's not talking about key moments from Israelite history in order to impress his listeners. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Let me tell you how much of the Old Testament I know. Take that. You know, he's not doing that. He's not there. He's not trying to pass an oral exam with these guys. No, Stephen is here responding to charges. Stephen is speaking in light of accusations that have been lodged against him personally. That's why he's saying what he's saying right here. Now, Even if we didn't have a record of the specific charges that were brought against Stephen, I think we could figure out the nature of those accusations. How could we do that? Well, by just taking note of what Stephen is emphasizing in his defense here. Why is he going? Why is he spending 50 verses going through all of this? What is he emphasizing here? What may at first appear to be an overview of key moments in Israelite history is really, in fact, a message about Moses. That's it. That's what it's about. It's about Moses. This whole message is about Moses. Look at chapter 7, verses 1 through 8. You'll see there, if you just scan over those verses, that Stephen is reminding us that Abraham was promised land by God but also that he possessed none of that land, but his descendants would in fact be slaves in another country. Oh, okay, wait a minute. Look at the next section, verses 9 through 16. In that section, the story of Joseph describes exactly how those descendants ended up in that other country, which we know was which country? Egypt, exactly. So that's how they got to Egypt. You see, it becomes clear that Stephen simply wanted to get us to Egypt. And he did this because that's where the story of Moses begins, in Egypt. So for almost 30 verses, from 17 to verse 44, Stephen is solely focused on the story of Moses. That's where he's going. And when he finally moves on from Moses, he does so using the topic of the tabernacle or the tent of meeting that God had instructed who? Moses to build according to, verse 44, according to the pattern that God himself had revealed to Moses. 
So the final section before Stephen's conclusion in our, our main text this morning is verses 45 through 50. And in those verses, Stephen is simply focusing on how Israel went from that tent in the desert to the temple in Jerusalem. Did God command them to, did he instruct them to build the tent? Yes, yes. Did he give them design, a pattern for how that tent should be built? Yes, right? Did he, did, he, did he order them to build the temple in Jerusalem? No. Did he give designs for how it should be built? No. You probably didn't know that, but that's, that's actually true. Keep, just keep that in mind, that idea. That, this is what Stephen is doing, where he's leading them. So, why did Stephen spend so much time here in 50 verses talking about Moses? Well, wonderfully, God has preserved for us through the historian Luke, right? Luke-Acts, they kind of go together. They're, they're two parts of the same composition, Luke-Acts. Through the historian Luke, God has preserved for us that record of the specific charges that were brought against Stephen. We know what was brought against, why he was put on trial. We find that record preserved for us in Acts chapter 6. Look with me at verses 8 through 14. You may have to turn back a page. Look at chapter 6, Acts 6, 8 through 14. It says this, one of the seven, Stephen. Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freed men, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. All these Jewish guys are going after Stephen. Fellow Jew, they don't like what he's saying though. But these men could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was, Stephen was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we've heard him, this Stephen, speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him, upon Stephen, and they seized him and they brought him before the council and they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Ah, the picture's becoming clearer, isn't it? The picture is becoming clear of what's happening. Stephen was accused of speaking against Moses. He was accused of speaking against the temple. He was accused of speaking against God. Therefore, it makes sense why he focuses so much on Moses here. But even more important to understand that this passage is how Stephen focused on Moses. What does that emphasis look like? Well, the crux of his entire argument is clearest to us. This is a lot of setup for the one passage, isn't it? But you really don't understand the conclusion unless you really understand what happened before this. It doesn't really make a lot of sense. So here is the the key. Look at verses 35 through 39. Acts 7, 35 through 39. 
This is what he tells them. Stephen says, This Moses whom they, that's the Israelites, this Moses whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This Moses is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers, Moses received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him. Our fathers thrust him aside. And their hearts, in their hearts, they turned to Egypt. Turned back to Egypt. Brothers and sisters, it is that section that sets us up for Stephen's stinging conclusion in our main text. Look at verses 51 through 53. Listen to where Stephen brings his listeners after this lengthy address. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Wow. Wouldn't you like to have been there? It would have been a painfully horrific place to be. But to hear what Stephen was saying by the power of God's Spirit through him, announcing this in the midst of such adversity. So as the one who stands accused, consider the indictment Stephen is bringing against them. Stephen turning the tables, bringing this indictment against them in verse 51. Stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. These are two very common Old Testament expressions using parts of one's physical body to communicate something about the spiritual self, something ugly about the spiritual self. Moses declared circumcised. Actually, what we do is we see this. We see these same images, those two images, right? The stiff-necked and then also the uncircumcised in, in heart and ears. We see those same images. They're actually combined, both of them together in, in a particular verse in Deuteronomy. We'll put that up on the screen for you here. Deuteronomy 10.16, Moses declares there, circumcised, that is, remove, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Literally, in Hebrew, that last phrase is, no longer stiffen your necks. 
no longer stiffen your necks. What needed to be circumcised from their hearts? Stubbornness. Stubbornness. Nehemiah chapter 9 describes this same Israelite attitude. So this is much later in time, right? We're jumping up uh, from the time... Well, we're going backwards, right? But this is much later than Solomon. You're fast-forwarding like 500 years past Solomon towards Jesus to the time of Nehemiah. Nehemiah 9, people have been restored to Jerusalem. They're talking about their shared history together. And this is what is said. Verse 29 of Nehemiah 9. We have that text for you too. And you warned them. God warned them in order to turn them back to your law Yet they acted presumptuously, arrogantly, willfully, and did not obey your commandments. But sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. Those were the covenant terms, weren't they? And they turned a stubborn shoulder. Oh, we got a third part of the body mentioned here now. A stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey where does this image of a stiff neck come from i think when you and i hear sometimes stiff neck you think wow i wish i could i could just do that sleep last night over again because i'm woken up and the pillow was like all wacky and i'm like waking up i'm like what the heck was i doing while i was sleeping was like sumo wrestling while i was because my neck is stiff that's not what we're talking about where does this image of a stiff neck come from well i think it's the Actually, the, just the opposite of the Hebrew word for repentance. In Hebrew, the word for repentance, the word that conveys that concept, is the Hebrew word shuv. And shuv means to turn. To return or turn. Right? What we have here is something complete. Now, look at Nehemiah 9.29. Is it still on the screen? Yeah. Look at Nehemiah 9.29. What did God want to do at the opening words there? He wanted to turn them back. There's the word shuv. He wanted to turn them back. So imagine someone walking on a path toward destruction who stubbornly, when you put your hand on their shoulder gently to get their attention, to help turn them around, to help correct them, to bring them the right way. Can you imagine a person who stubbornly jerks their shoulder away from you? And what happens? Their neck is stiff. That is, their gaze is locked ahead. They're not turning. They're not looking in any other direction. They are dead set on going the way that they've decided to go, undeterred. Again, this language of a hardened heart, and the word hardened is the same word used for stiffened the neck. Same Hebrew word. The hardened heart of Pharaoh, for example, in the Exodus account. Same word. So this language of a hardened heart or a stubborn or obstinate disposition is sadly quite common in the Old Testament. If you've read any of the Old Testament, you probably recognize some of this language. But why did Stephen bring this Old Testament indictment against the Israelite leaders of his own day? Why was he bringing this against them? Well, because they, not he, they, not he, 
were the ones who were acting against Moses and God. Does that make sense? Remember what he was being accused of. They had it completely wrong. They were the ones acting against Moses and God, for they were doing exactly what their ancestors had done to Moses and later again and again to the prophets. They did the same things. And their spiritual stubbornness, those men that surrounded Stephen, their spiritual stubbornness was clearest in their response to Jesus. You see, what Stephen declares here and emphasizes about Moses was even more true about Jesus. Moses was just a prefigurement. He was just a, he was just like a prototype. He was just kind of giving you a taste or a sense of one who was to come. Verse 35, this man God sent as both ruler and redeemer. Verse 36, Moses came performing wonders and signs. This is Jesus. How much more Jesus? But as with Moses, they rejected Jesus. Verse 38, Moses may have received living oracles from God through an angel, but Jesus was the living oracle. The Word made flesh. How much more? Jesus. How much better? Jesus. In fact, verse 37, when Moses declared, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers, he was talking about, he was pointing to Jesus. That's confirmed in Acts chapter 3 by Peter. But, but again, in terms of how they responded to Jesus, the same Jewish council before whom Stephen stood could also be described with the words of verse 39. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. How did they thrust Christ aside? Verse 52, they betrayed and murdered him. Moses didn't befall that fate, did he? Died of old age. Jesus was thrust aside. He was betrayed. He was murdered. God had been present with them in the person of Jesus. The Word, the Son, had tabernacled among them, but they rejected Him, and now they are here harassing Stephen, partly over a building that could never, ever truly house the Most High God. And God had told them that in many places. He had made that clear. Stephen gives one example here from Isaiah. Here's what we need to be clear about when we hear the words of Stephen in Acts 7. Stephen's indictment here was spoken in love. Did you get that sense when you heard Stephen's words? You probably didn't. It's not our first impression. But there was nothing more loving he could have said to them. That's how how desperate their condition was. That's how asleep they were in their sin. Lost, dulled. He was trying to rouse them with this prophetic tone. 
He was trying to rouse them, but doing so in love. How do we know that Stephen spoke with love? We know from the very final, from the final verse of this entire chapter, as they were also murdering him, as they had murdered Jesus, we read in verse 60 that he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. There's the heart of Stephen for his people. There's the heart of Stephen for even his kinsmen who are killing him. There's the heart of Stephen. So, brothers and sisters, let's stop for a minute. God has given us this revelation in Acts chapter 7. An amazing picture of the Old Testament, right? An amazing walk through the Old Testament. Bringing out some of these points. But, but, but think about what he's provided for us here. Stephen has what God has inspired for us in terms of an Old Testament takeaway. I think what we learn here is that one of the major morals of the scriptural story, what's the moral of the story? Here's one of the major morals of the scriptural story, the story that we've been reading, at least up to this point, is this. God wants us to acknowledge, to regularly acknowledge the fact that human beings are spiritually and disturbingly and relentlessly and disastrously stubborn. Stubborn. And in this very way, the Old Testament should be a mirror to us. What do you see when you look in a mirror? You see see an exact reflection of what you really are, what you really look like. The Old Testament should be a mirror to us in this way. Just as Stephen called his listeners in Acts 7 to see themselves in and to be sobered by the ancient stories of the Old Testament, the stories of their ancestors, God is calling us to do the very same thing today, to hear the words of Stephen, to hear the testimony of the Old Testament and recognize our own stubbornness as one of many things in light of these ancient stories. Think about being spiritually stubborn. Some people hold up stubbornness as kind of a virtue. Well, you know me, pastor. You know, I'm just stubborn that way. Probably not the best word to use. Uh, resolute might be a good one, right? They're resolved, they're determined, committed, dedicated. Stubborn, no. Don't think we need to make stubborn into a virtue. Scriptures, it's not a virtue. Spiritually stubborn. I think about, when I think about the idea of, of stubbornness, I think of the image of an obstinate child, right? Throwing a tantrum. You know, when their like body just like loses all of its muscle. You know, they don't want to leave where they are and they just go, ah, ah, and you try to grab them by the arm and they're just like jelly. Yeah, they're, maybe they're flopping. You're like, come on, let's go. I don't want to go. I don't want to go. I don't want to go. And they're just stubborn. Oh, they're being so stubborn. Maybe that's the image that comes to mind. Or maybe what comes to mind when you hear the word stubborn is an abrasive and arrogant adult. Ever met someone like that? Sometimes those images are helpful. 
because that is exactly what we're like at times. But those images can also become caricatures by which we excuse ourselves. It's not me. I'm not like that. I don't act like that spiritually. It's not appropriate. It doesn't fit that image. You know, sometimes our spiritual stubbornness is like the painfully passive neglect of a bitter spouse. How's that for an image? Sometimes it's like the calm words of the smiling friend who always has an excuse for why he can't ever be there for you. How's that for an image? Sometimes we don't recognize those as expressions of stubbornness, but that's what they are. That stiff neck, that hardened heart, that implacable resistance can be depicted in many ways, but all of them, all of it has this in common. It will not yield to God's word or God's work. Which of us can say that we haven't been stubborn like that? It resists and rejects what God is doing, especially God's correction. Which of us can say that's not us? Notice what I'm doing here. I'm offering two applications for you this morning. Let me show you those. We'll put them on the screen for you. Two things I would love to have you consider carefully, prayerfully about your own heart. Number one, in light of Acts 7, recognize and repent of your spiritual stubbornness. You may be telling yourself right now, I'm not a spiritually stubborn person. Keep talking to God about that, right? Keep talking to God about it. We'll talk just a minute about that. Number two, be intentional about using the Old Testament as a mirror. Be intentional about using the Old Testament as a mirror in terms of both conviction and conformity to God's word and work. Let me just for a bit unpack both of those points. So recognizing and repenting of our spiritual stubbornness is what Elder Steve talked to us about last Sunday. Part of what he talked about last Sunday. He shared with us the Church Father Augustine's wise words from 1,600 years ago. We'll put those on the screen. The beginning of knowledge is to know oneself to be a sinner. You know where Augustine had that? Etched on his wall in his old age, next to his bed. So he could always turn and look at it and be brought back to reality. Have clear vision. Be sobered. The beginning of knowledge is to know oneself to be a sinner. Psalm 32 last week provided us with a helpful image of the horse or the mule. That, verse 9, must be curbed with bit and bridle. Apart from God's grace, friends, that is us. That is you. That is me. What feeds a sinner's stubbornness? Many things feed stubbornness, this kind of spiritual stubbornness. Many things. Pride, fear, 
worldly desire. You see, we stay stiff-necked on our selfish and sinful paths because we seek man's praise over God's. Or we believe it's the only way for us to stay safe doing what we're doing. Or because we like what the world has to offer more than God's spiritual blessings, plain and simple. But praise be to God this morning. Praise be to God that we serve a creator who can and does soften the hearts of stubborn people like us. Amen? That is our God. He's the God who softens hearts. It is okay to admit that you're stubborn. It is right and it is good to acknowledge your stubbornness. Don't play games with God. Don't play games with yourself. Don't say, well, I'm not that little child. You may not be that little child. Your stubbornness may be far more cold and calculating. Your stubbornness may be far more deeply rooted in your trauma. Your stubbornness may be something else altogether. But call it what it is. Look at the fruit of it in your life. Unwilling to respond to what God is doing. How God is at work among you. I see God working in that way, but I don't want to see God working in that way because that's going to mean that I'm going to have to respond a certain way and that doesn't feel right and that doesn't feel good and that doesn't feel safe and I won't do it. I won't do it, God. What are five religious rationales that I can cook up right now to get out from under that burden of serving God? Friends, the commands of, the commands of God are not burdensome. First John chapter 5. It's an indication something's wrong with our heart, isn't it? That spiritual stubbornness. It is safe to acknowledge this because we serve a God who softens the hearts of stubborn creatures like us. The prophet Ezekiel spoke in advance of the Messiah's future ministry to the spiritually stubborn. What would the Messiah do when he came? How would he minister to the spiritually stubborn? Take a look. And I will give you a new heart. And I will give you a new spirit that I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone, hardened, obstinate. I will remove it from your flesh. And I will give you that soft heart of flesh beating. Ezekiel 36, 26. But even after receiving that new heart, we know full well Stubbornness can be a struggle for us. We can continue to struggle with it, can't we? We still wrestle with that stubbornness. That reality, the reality of that struggle is a good reminder of the fact that we need to. Here's, let's go back to that other screen with our two main application points. It's a great reminder that we need to be intentional about using the Old Testament as a mirror. The Apostle Paul said pretty much the same thing I'm telling you now. He affirmed this when he talked to the Corinthians about the same thing Stephen was talking about with them. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, what did he talk about? He talked about the stubbornness of the Israelites in the desert. And he talked about God's judgment meted out against them. This is what he told his readers. This is what the Apostle Paul said, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11. It's on the screen. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. 
on whom the end of the ages has come. Do you hear that? That's encouragement for how to read the Old Testament. One of the ways to read the Old Testament. Think about what Paul's saying. Think about what God's saying. As you read through the Old Testament, brothers and sisters, recognize yourself. Recognize yourself in Eve's doubt and distrust. See yourself in Abraham's fear, in Moses' pride. Recognize how you, like the emancipated Israelites, often minimize your past slavery. Identify with David's lust and Solomon's excess. Recognize how you, like Israel and Judah, often push aside the prophetic word and neglect the prophetic word in order to make room for fleshly excuses and worldly wisdom. Now, some people might take issue with my preaching right now and say, I'm being too hard. I'm not being encouraging enough. I'm not pointing you to God. Friends, this is God's word. The same charge could be brought against Stephen for preaching the way that he preached. But we're not finished, are we? We're not just talking about the bad news of sin. It is leading us with hearts prepared rightly for the good news. You see, we have to be reminded, don't we? Because we're spiritually stubborn. We have to be reminded of why the good news is so good and why we need it so badly every single day. That's the point where you say amen. Yeah. Do you know you need the gospel every day? Do you realize that? To the degree that you don't hold on to the gospel dearly each day, is the degree to which you hold yourself in high esteem and think you're sufficient. Think that you can figure it out on your own. That something shiny in this world is to be treasured above our Lord Jesus. We believe that. We hold to that because it's evidenced in how we live. We set the gospel to the side. You see, God's word does convict us. If I left it there, I'd be wrong. Because the Old Testament is about conviction and comfort. Both conviction and comfort. The mirror that reveals our sinful ugliness is also a window onto the incomparable vistas of God's beauty. Both are there. Yes, the Old Testament confirms our sinfulness, but it also confirms gloriously God's faithfulness. His faithfulness to speak life, to send a Savior. Like too many of their ancestors, Stephen's listeners had rejected that Savior. But by God's grace, He, Jesus Christ, is our ruler and redeemer. Amen. What does that mean? It means God softened your heart, my heart. He took stubbornly, spiritually stubborn people like us and he softened our hearts and he helped us not to reject but to receive Christ. I pray that's true for you. It may not be true for you. You may be telling yourself that it's true for you, but the fruit of the evidence in your life is not matching up, doesn't line up with what you're saying. 
And the most loving thing I could say to you is be convicted and respond to what God is showing you about yourself. Because in that is life. In that is hope. In that is good news. How is your neck this morning? How is your neck this morning? I know mine can often be way too stiff. Way too stiff. We need to pray, don't we? We need to pray, Father, please show me how and why I'm being spiritually stubborn. Soften my heart and turn me. Let me be humbly responsive to your good and gracious guidance. Guidance through your word, through my brothers and sisters, through your discipline, and ultimately through your Spirit's empowering. Pray that prayer. Come to Him with that prayer. And we can do this regularly as we allow God through His Word, both Old Testament and New Testament, to show us what we're really like. Even as those redeemed, I think our tendency is too often to maximize the sinfulness of others while minimizing our own. Isn't that, isn't that the M- MO for human beings? Yeah, they'll much more quickly tell you about how this guy's a jerk, how that politician's a crooked crook, how that person should get this or that done to them. Far more often than they'll tell you, this is how I have failed this week. This is how I betrayed a friend. This is how I have been cold. How I have been complacent in my faith. How I have binged myself on the world's goods and made no time for the word. How I've not, I've shared all sorts of news about what's popular out in the culture and the movies but I haven't shared my faith not even once with another person. Not even an encouraging word. Am I standing up here to make you feel bad? I'm not doing that. I'm not trying to do that. I'm trying to remind us of what healthy looks like. Because that's what Jesus looks like. And to the degree that we're struggling, you may say, I don't know what to do. I am struggling in those ways. I feel cold. I feel resistant. Right? To real fellowship, deep fellowship. I feel resistant to sharing my faith. I feel resistant to to getting involved, to letting go of sins that I've been hiding and harboring in my life. I feel resistant. You know what? The first step is just to to go to a trusted brother and sister and, and say that those very things. I feel resistant. Great. Let's pray together. Let's talk about that. Right? The, the first step is not to try to figure it out on your own and say, oh, okay, once I can get looking good, get this dealt with in my life, then I can show up and go, all right, let's pray. Let's, let's do some ministry together. No, that's not why God's put us in each other's lives. You see, we need the conviction of the word, the mirror of the word. Don't look away from that mirror. Let it show you what it needs to show you. Because when it does you will run to Jesus. And what better thing could we do than run to Jesus every single day? 
God in love, as Stephen spoke in love, God more so speaks in love. He wants to use his word as a mirror. But he reveals to us hard things like our spiritual stubbornness after first revealing hopeful things, specifically the good news about Jesus. That's our hope. Stephen's listeners responded to this mirror that Stephen had placed before them. They responded with an eagerness to put him to death. Shut up. We don't want to hear any more of this. But let us respond, brothers and sisters, in light of Jesus, with an eagerness to put to death what is earthly in us. That's Paul in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. Put to death what is earthly in you. That should be our response. That should be our desire through God's grace and the power of His Spirit. And as we do this, I believe God, as we see in this passage, will give us eyes to see Jesus more clearly and a greater grace to reflect the heart of Christ for those around us. That's exactly how Stephen's story ends. It's how his earthly pilgrimage ends. Look with me at Acts seven fifty four through 60. Now, when they heard these things, when they heard this accounting of their history, when they looked into this mirror of the Old Testament, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. He saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stuffed their ears and they rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. Look at verse 59. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. It was not a quiet whisper. It was a loud voice. They all heard it. What did they hear? They heard the heart of Jesus in Stephen. They heard the heart of God in Stephen. And when he said this, he fell asleep. Would you pray with me?